local news now. Analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning and welcome to the Woodford Show. Another beautiful day playing out here in Kamloops. Blue sky, sunshine, going to be warm out there. we got a packed show for you. We're going to talk a little fly fishing with a local fly fishing legend. We're also touch base on some American and Canadian politics. First with Jeffrey Myers, TRU lecturer and lawyer, as we always do on Tuesdays, as well as another TRU lawyer and from one who uh, used to serve in the Attorney General's office in Craig Jones. So plenty in the back end of the show as well. First, though, we're going to talk agriculture, climate change, farming, uh, pleasure to welcome in the studio this morning, uh, Camel's counselor and uh, farmer, uh, Dieter Duty. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, welcome. Uh, for people who don't know, you uh, you operate Thistle Farms, an organic farm out in Westside Road, uh, and you guys are getting busy. But uh, you are you found something that kind of um, straddles both your job titles as counselor, a civic politician, and your love of agriculture uh, on the topic of climate change and how do we deal with that in terms of agriculture. A lot of talk about cars, urban centers, pollution, greenhouse gases. Uh, but if I have your take correctly, we need to talk more about how climate change is going to impact agriculture and specifically how we get that conversation and some of those um, programs or access to some of these things out to the agricultural areas, not so much in the city centers. That's right. And the service is actually called Extension, uh, which makes good sense because on the one hand, you've got your scientists doing the research and, and development with regard to how they how they are going to view the impacts of, agri- uh, of of climate change on agriculture and what they're going to do about it. So you've got <clears throat> you've got that community out there doing all that work and they're they're putting out a number of papers. Um, but the average farmer, being the average farmer, is very very busy and doesn't yeah. necessarily have the time to go and access that information. So thereby you have extension services and you have people who are very qualified to take that information and pass it on to farmers and ranchers. We have a paucity of that in, in BC. We have very few of those individuals who have the ability to take the information that scientists are, are, are providing, collating that, and, and then bringing it to to the farmers themselves in a way that they can then uh, work with that and, and uh, improve what they do, plus mitigate the effects of, of climate change. Now, climate change and agriculture, so uh, warming weather, uh, that should, there's I guess it's a pro and a con, that should mean longer, warmer growing seasons, but on the other flip side of that, uh, more weeds, more pests, uh, more extreme weather, which can impact crops. How can farmers, what kind of information do you need to get to farmers in order for them to make changes to address this sort of changing climate? Well, the one thing is is making them understand that extremes of any sort don't help at all. In yeah. fact, even warmer weather isn't necessarily a good thing. There's a, there's a uh, uh, an ideal temperature would be around 28 to 29 degrees with uh, you know, rain every single night would be the wonderful thing. It would be an <laughs> ideal situation. It's not going to happen. But, um, <clears throat> uh, the question is, is how do we get that information to them? What we need to do is, is get the governments at all levels to try to encourage more people to get into the type of industry whereby they go and get this information and then make it available to farmers um, so that farmers can go about and, and adjust the way they, they um, plant the, the type of material they plant according to the type of weather that they're going to be you know, having. 
when it comes to heat, you, you can no longer have, say, cold crops or lettuces because it's, they're simply not going to work well in this type of an environment. When it comes to the rains and things like that, you're going to have to find a way of protecting your plants, whether it's with uh, instead of shade cloth being used to shade from the extremes of the sun, you're going to be you know, trying to uh, shade from the extremes of the, of the rain and the torrents that may be coming down. You have wind that, that is more likely to, to accompany that type of weather that right. has to be, so you're going to have to set up all sorts of breaks and things like that. But science is always looking for ways to address the things that are changing. So we need to just have access to that. Yeah, well, obviously you put in a lot of work every year at Thistle Farm. So what are you seeing on the What kind of adjustments and changes are you making out there in response to what you're seeing on the on that sort of changing climate side? What, what have you done on the ground out there? Well, we have cooler springs, uh, except for this spring. Um, <laughs> as, as a rule. Do tell. As a rule, you know, and, and I've seen this happening over, particularly about this last decade, I've noted that our springs have been cooler and yeah. they've lasted longer. They've gone deep into June in many cases. Yeah. Well, remember the flooding seasons of the last exactly. two years. Exactly. So as a result, what's happened is, is that the, this is a very critical time for plants because that's when they really want to get their good start. If they don't get it then, they're likely not going to have it through the summer. So as a result, what you do is, is you start having hoop houses or hoop tunnels. Um, you start using uh, a biodegradable um, vegetable-based mulch, which is like a plastic, which heats up the soil to try to get more to the, the, the root system itself. So you're looking for ways to extend the season as best as you can and, and by bringing more heat to the plants. Interesting. Um, when you talk about sort of a bringer of information to farmers, um, what does that look like? Are we talking sort of like, you know, people who just literally go to visit a farm and say, okay, here's the information you need. Yeah. What, what does that look like on the ground? I mean, it could be that way. You, sure. you, could, you could have that sort of thing, but that would be awfully time consuming. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, it, 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 it just would be too difficult to try to do it that way. No, you'd be offering web Webinars. You'd be offering seminars in communities. You would uh, go through um, certifying bodies for organics, for instance. You'd be going through the BC Association for Farmers Markets. You would have university universities put out uh, uh, weekend-type workshops for farmers to attend uh, during the off-season, so that they could learn more about the things that they could uh, they could uh, do to help themselves with regard to climate change. Um, so many different ways of bringing that information out. You'd have mailing lists. You could have uh, um, access to, to things online that where the stuff is instead of having to go for each individual item on your own where everything is brought together so that you have right. access to that type of a thing. And it just doesn't exist. It, it just simply isn't there. I think you need more buy-in from, and I'm sure you would get it from universities, where, for instance, in the United States, most of the change is driven by universities. In Canada, it tends to be driven by, more than anything, by uh, our, our government system. Right. And if, if it doesn't fit in within the budget, you're certainly not going to see that type of thing. So. Well, you're a city councillor. We have a fairly well-known university in this town. What possibilities do you see for symmetry there to kind of create this thing from the ground up in this community? Well, my dream would be you've got a piece of property that sits out on Ord Road or just off of Ord Road that used to be a Canada research station for agriculture, and it's been sitting vacant for about the last 10 years. I would love to see the university get into partnership with First Nations and uh, decide to, to put a school together, much like what you would see in Olds or in Guelph, Mm. Uh, which would address not only not only the climate change aspect of things, but uh, uh, agriculture in general. 
Is there anything moving in that direction? or is that Well, just I don't know. I'm sure that the thought is there. Yeah. I don't think it's gone beyond that at this stage. I would like to see it. I'd like to see some very healthy discussion on it because I think we're primed for it. We're steeped in agriculture, so yeah. why not have that type of a facility available for the people that are here? Not only for the people that are currently ranching and farming, but for those that are coming up and wanting to be a part of that process. It's It, it would be an incredible institution to have and, and be part of TRU and for Tacoma's. Could you take a leadership role in that? I mean, you have an agricultural background to some degree. You well, also like, are a city councillor. You work with TRU. Could you, I mean, you yourself, could you become sort of an impetus to move in that direction or no? I could, except for the fact that it would probably be viewed as self-serving and a conflict of interest. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so in but that then in sense, some ways, because you, you do have the degree to do it. I mean, you're a guy who knows of what you speak on the farming side. I, you I, also have these, these relationships in the community. And, and I recognize but I, I guess it would have to be behind the scenes and not in the public view because right. that is exactly how it would be viewed is just that I would be gaining as a result of that. Yeah, well, that's a bit unfortunate. But yeah. uh, how do you see it progressing then? Hey, if it's not you, then then how does it? How does this thing germinate? Well, I mean, I you, you can, you can, you're contributing to it now because you're on the radio talking to me about it. People are listening. The idea is beginning to flow out there. But beyond that, how, how do you see this sort of you know rock getting rolled down the hill? Well, I, you know, we have an agricultural area plan. I would like to see an agricultural area committee that actually starts to look at the things that are impacting us as a region and then bringing that forward and pushing it. So so looking for extension services that could be brought to to the, the agricultural people within our community. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I, I guess more than anything, it's it's getting all levels of government interested in, in, in making changes that are going to impact our agriculture. You know, the one thing people have to understand is, is that all the things that climate change are going to affect none is going to be affected more than the, the production of food. Uh, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe there's some kind of agriculture committees that sit within the TNRD. Yes. Is that, is it, could that be somewhere where this starts? Or? Well, it could. You know, it, 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 any type of a, a body, whether it's the Canada's Food Policy Council or, or the Agricultural Area Committee that, that, that you have with the TNRD or any, any type of body like that that starts becoming more and more vocal about the need for information to flow through to farmers and ranchers would be welcomed. All right. Um, on the value of food growth, I, I was interested when you said earlier, you know, like lettuce becomes kind of a problematic crop with climate change. Uh, are people abandoned? Like, are we going to see certain foods just go away or no? If we see an increase in temperatures, you're going to actually find that there are certain things that just cannot be grown here. And, you know, and it's not limited to cold crops like that. You could have peppers, for instance, if all of a sudden our average temperature is in the high 30s to mid 40s, which could conceivably happen, you're going to see a lot of things just stop growing because they won't grow in that type of an environment. They want to be in that ideal sort of situ you know, situation yeah. with, with, with temperature. So it, it's not just the lettuces or the cabbages or things like that. You could see tomatoes and potatoes and, and peppers and all those things impacted by this. Is this a, a topic of interest? I mean, obviously for you, but you must talk to other farmers and people in the agriculture. I know you're busy down at the food, uh, the farmers market, uh, uh, both on the on Victoria Street and the one on the weekend, as well. Is this as a common topic among sort of your fellow people in the agriculture industry? Or no? It's becoming more and more. So I mean, the panel discussion that we had a couple of weeks ago up at TRU involved three farmers um, who were very aware of how, how climate change is impacting us. I think it's. 
I don't know that there's enough discussion amongst farmers to, to try to get them to all work together to try to find some changes. We need to do that. But again, it helps if you've got somebody to facilitate that, that discussion and right. bring information there. Well, it sounds like there's uh, some work to be done in that sector. And uh, I mean, at the very least, you're raising an issue and adding your voice to it, even if you can't, you know, perhaps take the lead out of a conflict of interest. But uh, it sounds like there's there's definitely some ground to cover in there, and we'll have to see how that progresses. But uh, interesting topic. Thanks, Dieter. Appreciate the uh, appreciate the words. Thanks for having me. That's uh, Campbell's counselor, Dieter Duty. Also uh, runs uh, Thistle Farms on West Side Road. Uh, we'll take a quick break, and on the other side, we're going to talk a little fly fishing. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back to the Woodford Show. A new book is out by Mark Hume. You might recognize that name. He's a Globe and uh, longtime uh, reporter, journalist of the Globe and Mail. Has uh, written about some fascinating stuff. He's taken some time uh, on the side to write a book called Trout School, Lessons from a Fly Fishing Master. That fly fishing master is known here in Kamloops as a bit of a legend. Uh, proud to welcome Mo Bradley to the show. Good morning, Mo. How are you? Good morning. Who am I talking to? You're talking to Shane Woodford, Mo. How are you? Okay. <laughs> I'm doing fine. Yeah, good. So what do you think about uh, about uh, this book? I assume you've, you've read it, uh, that Mr. Hume's uh, got it out. I understand you guys are going to be uh, taking part in a signing soon. But how do you feel about uh, you and your, your fly fishing history being sort of recorded in book form? Well, this goes back a long way, Shane. Uh, Years and years ago at Tunker Lake, after a good day's fishing, we'd sit in Dick Deutsch's cabin and Sally's cabin, and there'd be Mike Ferguson from Douglas Lake, there'd me, uh, Barney Rushton, Jack Shaw, and they'd be talking. And I stopped them one time, I said, why don't we put it in book form? And Jack said, no, nobody'll read it. And well, he did later, and he did very well. But... Uh, these things can't be forgotten. It's, you know, without the history of fishing, which we've got, a good one, through Bill Nation and John Dexheimer and several other good people, Heave Smith, Cyril Pinchbeck, Jack Shaw, and without that, you haven't got a, you haven't got a future. Yeah. You build on history. I always think so. And that's what I'm doing now. And I'm, I taught it for 50 years in fly tying, and I'm t- I got television and radio show with me, Paul, mm-hmm. and... Uh, this is got, if it's recorded, then it just cannot be forgotten. If it's recorded in writing, anyway. Yeah. Uh, Mo, you've you've spent a large part of your life really uh, diving into this passion of yours, uh, fly fishing. What can you take me back to when you were a little guy? I mean, what what was it that drew you into fly I'm fishing? A little guy. <laughs> but uh, when you were a younger man, what 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 is it about fly fishing that that really? What, what was the impetus no, for you to kind fishing, of dive into? It? Uh, in England, is a different game altogether. It's usually for the the. The, what they call the upper class, the aristocracy. Trout fishing, that is, fly fishing. We were coarse fishing in canals and rivers and ponds, and that was very, very good. When did you, uh, when did you make the move from England to here? In 65. Wow, and did you uh, jump right into fly fishing and fishing around the region right away, or no? Quite honest, I was quite shocked, because when I got here, people were trolling gang trolls. For, for rainbow. 
And I thought, well, there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that if a person wants to do that. But the essence of, of fishing for trout is fly fishing, really. And fly fishing, there's nowhere in the world better than where we're sitting right now, you or me. There's nowhere. I've been to a lot of these places. I've been to Scotland, England, Wales, Ireland, all these other places. And apart from after paying a tooth and a nail for it, things, you, uh, well, in Scotland, some of the some of the locks are over a thousand dollars a day. Now what we've got, we've got how many lakes, and all I pay, I'm eight to two now nearly, and it's all I pay is five dollar license. It's a bloody insult to me. That is. <laughs> it's worth such a lot more. Yeah. There's nowhere. I mean, nowhere, my friend. I've been to these places. Yeah. Down to Texas, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. And John Bernardo arranged this thing down in, in Arkansas. He uh, said, I'm taking you fishing tomorrow. I said, what are we fishing for? Uh, crappie. I said, that's not a good start to a day's conversation. <laughs> Uh, then bass and sunflower, sun, what do you call them? Sunflower seed, fish or some stupid thing. And uh, anyway, uh, I said, no, I'm going uh, to use my own fishing fly tackle. He said, you'll not catch any. Okay, you use yours and I'll use mine. And he's got a fantastic boat. I've seen some boats with, like, with clear lacquer on them, but not clear lacquer that you could lose yourself in. Yeah. And it was an incredible thing. What, what these fish on is compounds for power stations because they're all cold generated. Yeah. They need water for steam. And then it goes in one side through the turbines and goes in cool through the turbines, coming out the other side quite warm. And that usually is where all the crappy and the bass and all these things are. Anyway, we started about 9 at 9.30. By 12 o'clock, I'd had 12 fish, and he'd had two. <laughs> and all I was fishing was with leeches that we'd use here. Yeah. That one that I tied on TV. <laughs> and he said, why? I said, because this is what they eat, John. They don't eat metal. And that's all they were fishing with, jingly bloody metal. So I, I took it on myself then. I was down there for another two weeks, and I'd give lessons down there, and we had a fantastic time. And they were very, very interested Wow. Uh, I understand you and Mark Hume. Uh, Mark Hume's coming to town. You guys are going to do a book signing. Uh, is that? I believe that's next week. Do you remember when, the, where and when that is? Surplus Herbies on the 13th. Okay, it's Surplus Herbies, yeah? On the 13th. Yeah, okay, fantastic. Uh, how long have you known Mr. Hume? Ah, uh, dear, dear, dear. Longest time is time. Uh, every winter, I used to go to, well, it would be November the 99th, I'd go to Leighton Lake, and I went up there the same time, same place. There's nobody on the lake except this one Volkswagen Westphalia. And it was snowing like a bugger. And I thought, well, I'll sit here, and I, I sat there. I must have nodded off for a while. And I, I came back out of it, and the sun was shining, the snow was melting off my truck, and they were still sitting there. I thought, well, I don't know. Anyway, I put the boat in. I went to my usual spot in the north end. And at that end, that time, the sedge grasses and all them things get cold stems and they can't support themselves, so they drop down flat on the bottom of the lake. And this thing called a sedge, in its case, was crawling all over these downed weeds. And I knew this, I was fishing with a little woolly bugger. And uh, 
I don't know how many fish I caught, but you could tell I was being watched by the, the, east, the north side of the windows on the Westphalia were all being kept clean and wiped off with condensation. And it, anyway, after, well, I'd had enough by two o'clock, they were getting cold. So I was packing up and he came over to me and he said, how come you're fishing in wintertime? I said, not wintertime yet. I said, I've fished this place for 40 years in this one spot and that one weed bed. And I know the fish are there. I know what to feed them on, you know, what to give them. And I said, would you like a couple of fish? And I gave him a couple of rainbow, but just over two pounds. And he thought that was wonderful. So I'd got enough. Anyway, that's what that's how we met. And then another coincidence happened. I was guiding for Stump Lake. We're, we're just about out of time, Mr. Mr. Bradley, but uh, fire away. Uh, we were guiding the Stump Lake, and we were doing the fundraiser for the creek up there, and Mark Hume was invited to do a story, and everything happened since then. Wow. Uh, well, as I mentioned, the book's called Trout School, Lessons from a Fly Fishing Master. Uh, Mark Hume, Mo Bradley will do a signing here at Surplus Herbie's next week. Mo, thank you for taking some time. It was a real pleasure to chat with you. It's fun. All right, that's a local for a long time. <laughs> that's local fly fishing legend Mo Bradley. We'll have more on the Woodford Show after this. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on six ten a.m. and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. A uh, pleasure to talk to Jeffrey Myers, lawyer and lecturer up at TRU, as we do each and every Tuesday to talk uh, some Canadian and American politics. Good morning, Jeff. How are you? Oh, good morning. Great to be on with you, Shane. Yeah, good to hear your voice again. Uh, okay, so uh, why don't we start on this side of the border, uh, because we don't get to do that terribly often, and it would be good uh, to talk about the ongoing SNC-Lavalin thing, because there's an interesting legal um, drama, or guys, a different aspect of a continuing legal drama, really, that's playing out in the SNC-Lavalin affair, and that's uh, this recorded phone call that uh, then-Attorney General uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, recorded a, a senior, uh, the head of the civil service, Michael Wernick, uh, that has been released as of a couple of days ago, one that caused a, a fair amount of shockwaves out there, both for its content and, of course, for the legal argument of whether or not she should have, and, and uh, whether the, the legal grounds exist for her to record a phone call, uh, etc. So um, your take on, on this particular twist, or... Well, I mean, I think that, you know, generally speaking, it's important for um, members of the public to know what the ethical rules are around lawyers recording telephone conversations, right? And so <clears throat> those rules are governed by the law society in the various provinces. Now, the Attorney General in Canada is admitted in the Law Society of Ontario. She's all, this Attorney General, by, by virtue of a special statute, which allows them to be admitted, this, this, Ontario, this Attorney General is also admitted in B.C. She's to be a or the former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould used to be a prosecutor, um, a Crown Counsel prosecutor on Main Street. Um, and so, but what the rules in most provinces, and I think all provinces, if I'm not mistaken, say is that if a lawyer is going to record a conversation either with a client or with another lawyer, that they have an obligation to disclose that they're going to to record that conversation beforehand, presumably so that the other, either the lawyer or the client can choose not to have that discussion or to ask them not to do it. Um, 
and and so that raises obviously some concern as to whether or not if if speaking to the clerk of the privy council by the attorney general in her capacity as attorney general the chief law enforcement officer and lawyer for the government if taping that attorney general violates um uh, sorry if taping that conversation without letting the clerk of the privy council know violates um violates ethical rules and whether in fact a lawyer can be disciplined for that under these circumstances and the answer and we can get into it more is in this case, whether that rule applies, it's complicated, and there's a few factors um, at play. But the other sort of piece of it, just generally, I think folks are interested in, is you know, a person under normal circumstances, if, if nobody's a lawyer in the conversation, there's not an, a lawyer-client relationship, then somebody can, as long you can tape uh, a conversation with um, someone else. It, 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 but you can't, for example, tape a conversation between two parties other than yourself. Um, without permission, right? Um, so the idea is if you're involved in a conversation and you choose to tape it, you can do that, and person, other person speaking, you takes the risk that they're being recorded. But somebody else can't record you and another person. And if you're a lawyer and you're going to record your conversation, then you need to disclose. One of the aspects of that uh, that I've heard uh, from, from a lawyer contact of mine down in Vancouver uh, was you have to be an acting lawyer. She didn't think Jody Wilson-Raybould was either in, in Ontario or B.C., but you made uh, an interesting note that as Attorney General, there's a, there seems to be a bit of a stipulation there. To, to my knowledge, an Attorney General wouldn't be, you know, they for starters, to my knowledge, it, that there's a um, uh, statutory provision which basically permits the Attorney General to be a member of the um, Law Society of Upper Canada, which is the Law Society in the province of Ontario. Certainly, I don't know whether she's a practicing, if she's if she's carrying practice insurance and she's a practice member of um, either the Law Society or a practicing member of either the Law Society of Upper Canada. I would think she would be in order to carry out her functions as Attorney General. I don't know whether she's a continuing member of the Law Society of BC or not, but there's no question that the Attorney General does act on behalf behalf of the government as the government lawyer, at least this is my reading of things, and therefore would have the same um, ethical duties uh, towards the government as her client as any other lawyer would have towards any other client. Now, whether or not, so the the complicating factor is the question of whether or not, um, you know, again, if, if 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 Mr. Trudeau has waived the privilege in connection with discussions around the SNC Lavalin affair, the idea being he has nothing to hide and he's permitting her to speak freely and she does so, that's a different question. But at the time of that conversation, I think there's no doubt that JW that uh, Jody Wilson Raybould was in fact the Attorney General and that she was engaged in a conversation with the clerk of the Privy Council, who's the head of the civil service. I suppose if you wanted to really parse things, you could ask yourself, and this sort of actually seems to be what Mr. Warren Key is aware of in the conversation, which is interesting, is whether she was speaking to him in her role as Minister of Justice or in her role as Attorney General, right? Because remember, the Minister of Justice is a political minister like any other, but the Attorney General is the chief law enforcement officer in Canada and the lawyer for the government. And sometimes the role that the, when you have the same person playing both roles, things can get confused and and uh, murky. And that's why I said in some jurisdictions like the UK, the Attorney General is a, is a separate portfolio which sits outside of Cabinet from the Minister of uh, Justice who is within Cabinet and is just another minister among many. I guess my my sort of uh, take on it is if you if if you're Jody Wilson Raybould and you're, you're recording a phone call yeah. uh, that you think with some likelihood you may use in the future to to cover your butt and the other yeah. side of the conversation isn't aware the phone call is being recorded, then I would think that that she may um, pose questions or sort of um, 
put herself in the best possible light on her side of the conversation with the realization that somebody else may listen to this in the public realm at some point, while the other side of the conversation simply doesn't know that. Well, when you listen to the tape of the conversation, it certainly does seem that way. I mean, it seems like she is sort of making her case, as it were, with an eye towards, um, you know, what the eventual outcome of this would be and that possibility, obviously, of that uh, discussion being uh, made public, which it was. Um, So it's hard not to say that. Um, You know, that said, I suppose, again, she's getting good legal advice uh, on her own part in terms of what to do and not to do. She's retained former uh, Supreme Court Judge uh, Tom Cromwell, who's advising her, and I'm not sure what his advice was um, in this regard. Um, But, I mean, I guess guess one possible argument is if, you know, that her client, if 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 she's having these discussions in her capacity as a lawyer for the government of Canada, it's not like Mr. Warnke as the chief of the Privy Council as an individual is her client. It's the entire government which is a client, right? And so in that case, if there's a kind of, uh, if, if it's in the best interests of the, the government to have this information um, out there in the open, perhaps that gives her some wriggle room. But she also makes reference in that discussion to protecting the prime minister, which is not exactly what her role is either. So I think this is going to make this, um, this issue a lot more um, complicated. And I think it will be interesting to see uh, whether or not anybody takes a, um, a disciplinary action at the Law Society and whether the, uh, the Law Society, either in Ontario or B.C., um, weighs in on this. But again, it does go to the question of whether she's acting in her capacity as a lawyer for the government or as a minister of justice. And it's just yet another argument for um, the reason why maybe these two positions should be separated. Uh, turning our attention south of the line, there's been an interesting bend in the, in the Mueller report, as, as we talked about at length last weekend, or last week, um, the Mueller report uh, finally concluded. It's been tabled into uh, Attorney General William Barr, who then released a four-page letter saying, listen, nothing to see here as far as collusion. Uh, there's some obstruction of justice stuff laid out, but we looked at it, and there's nothing really to follow through on. So essentially, case closed. Uh, he cited the page count, and this thing is about 300 pages. Uh, we have the New York time saying it's actually uh, much greater than that to msnbc's reporting it's actually north of 400 pages uh, i guess my first question is is why would you why would you meddle with the page count and and the second half of that for me would be if you're making changes to a report that that is, might be released at some point and you don't have a finite page count out there it's pretty hard to tell what you've taken out of that report once it hits the sees the light of day all right. Well, so there's a few things in there. First thing is that the one, you know, kind of solid quotation that we have from Bob Mueller that was given over in the in the bar letter was this notion that although he uh, that he's he he although he couldn't say that he was guilty of obstruction of justice, he could also not exonerate him, right? And so my sense from reading that again, that's that's a quote that we've been given in isolation from everything else, along with this conclusion, rather perfunctory, if you will, by Mr. Barr and Mr. Rosenstein that there hadn't been an obstruction of justice. So what I think one of the reasons we need to see all of those 300 or 400 or 600 pages or whatever it is, is to put that odd sentence into context, right? And I think part of the reason that um, Mr. Barr um, released it is because he knows that down the line, you know, whether it's a redacted version uh, and whether it's in, you know, sort of over a long period of time or a shorter period of time, eventually there's going to be scrutiny on the report. It's going to be impossible to keep it from the public forever. So whatever he says or concludes based on that letter, he doesn't want to make a kind of liar out of himself later on. So it's likely going to be sort of within the realm of the gray zone. But I think what's really important to understand is it may be 
that Mr. Mueller was saying, I don't think there's a case for, um, clearly based on what uh, Mr. Barr says, going to be egg on his face if there's a case for collusion in there. But he says, I don't think that there's a, he says that there's, he lays out the evidence and doesn't make a conclusion either way on the question of obstruction of justice. That suggests to me that it was likely his thinking that this should go to Congress to make a determination, and then if necessary to bring articles of impeachment and have a trial on that very issue on the Senate floor. He doesn't want to go... He's he's obviously making an assessment, or it seems that what Mr... Um, Barr saying he's making an assessment around some of the conspiracy charges that there's not enough there for him to recommend anything further, but he's left it open on obstruction. And I think that that's an invitation to Congress and an invitation to the American public to look at the evidence and make some assessments. So I think that by short-circuiting that analysis and drawing the conclusion um, that Mr. Barr did, which, by the way, was effectively the same conclusion that he'd drawn about the Mueller report from the beginning before he was even appointed, I think it raises lots of questions, and their demands are rightly being made um, by Democratic members of Congress and by the public and by the media to have this whole thing um, um, released to the public for, for, for whole scrutiny. I don't think we can or should be expected to take on faith uh, what's been said by uh, Mr. Barr. Uh, what's your sort of assessment of the media coverage over the last week and sort of the, the conclusions drawn in the public realm? Obviously, some of them deeply partisan, but uh, a lot of people on one side of the spectrum, you know, case closed. The, the president, of course, is doing victory laps and, yeah. and saying all sorts of ridiculous things. But I, I think it's crazy. I mean, I think that the media response in the last week is, I think it's been way too fast on the mea culpas, where you get like a lot of media, mainstream media saying, well, maybe we did jump to conclusions and maybe there really was nothing here after after all, and you know, maybe we should, maybe we did, maybe we did make a mistake here. You've even had some articles written, you know, where people are comparing the Russia Gate to, um, you know, weapons of mass destruction. Geez, there were no weapons of mass destructions, and and we were misled. You know, I think those that those conclusions are, are you know, I think they're it's a it's a it's a sign of the success of Mr. Trump's uh, um, public relations campaign, his insistence. Uh, um, uh, statement of affairs that that you know has taken hold anywhere. I mean, where there's nothing to conclude whatsoever. We haven't seen the report, and an attorney general that we know to have been skeptical of the whole basis for the inquiry in the first place um, has withheld that uh, report for the time being. So I think until everybody gets a copy of the report, just like we had the Star report, just like we had the report on the Iran Contra, um, until everybody has a chance to scrutinize that, until Congress has an opportunity to look at it, um, you know, nothing is over. Um, and and we know really very little. Um, so I think the strategy around this is to sort of cut off that debate at the pass or at least cause people's energy and interest to sort of pass along. So by the time the report actually is released, maybe there'll be less interest on it, less scrutiny on it, people will have moved on. Uh, it certainly gives room uh, for, the for the president to declare a political victory, but I think it's definitely premature, as I also think that the cases of the you know, media, you know, doing kind of mea culpa, so, oh, geez, maybe we were wrong all along. All that is too premature. And I think also it's important to remember, as I said on your last, um, your last episode where you and I talked, is um, that the indictments and the guilty pleas and um, the convictions of Mr. Trump, some key aides in and around Mr. Trump's orbit, um, and the implica his implication in, in, camp in directing campaign finance violation in connection with Mr. Cohen, for which he's going to do jail time, those are all sufficient evidence of wrongdoing without needing to actually look at the Mueller report. These are grand juries that have indicted and uh, trials that have found people guilty or uh, judges which have accepted uh, guilty pleas. I mean, these are 
huge evidence um, of wrongdoing, if not directly attributable to Mr. Trump, at least attributable to the people around him. And it's up to the political judgment of Congress to make a determination as to whether this rises to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors. So this is by no means done. I think what's really happening here is that Congress has made the assessment that if they were able to get if they were able to get impeachment which is not for certain in any case that the senate would acquit and that the public would become jaundiced and regard the thing as a kind of political um exercise as people did with the clinton impeachment and that it might redound to the benefit of mr trump and help him in his reelection or somehow backfire and i think that those kind of calculated political um um sort of way of looking at this uh, this question of impeachment, I think, abdicates the actual legal and moral responsibility of Congress. And maybe the Senate should just have a, uh, a trial and we should, uh, and then we should just respect the outcome of that trial. And again, um, these details need to be available to the public so that they can put pressure on their Congress members. And so Congress members can make that um, analysis. And we're just, we're not in the position to do that. So everything that's happening now, all of the conclusions which are being drawn are truly um, premature. But certainly any conclusion that there was all a hoax, that there was nothing there, that this was all just a witch hunt, I mean, that that is false on its face because of what we've already seen in terms of what the what Mueller's investigation yielded in terms of concrete results over and above and beyond whatever the content of his report is. And I guess my last question is, as we kind of continue this ripple effect and, and wait for this thing to be, uh, to see the light of day, uh, in your opinion, what are the chances are that Mr. Mueller is, or any of his team are subpoenaed and then providing a whole new wrinkle as we hear what, uh, what they have to say to direct questions? Oh, I mean, I think it's almost invariably the case that, um, you know, as it depends on how long uh, it takes for the report and how much of the report is going to be released. But certainly the longer it takes for the report to release and the less of the report um, that's released, uh, the more likely it's going to be that um, the new Democratic Congress will use its full subpoena powers. The risk is that the Congress won't go perhaps as hard at this as it should if it's looking at polls and um, you know voters are increasingly wanting them to move on or viewing this as no longer an issue. Again, that would be a huge victory political and propaganda victory for Mr. Trump, and it would be unfortunate, I think, for the American public and for America's institutions. But it may happen that there's a calculated decision on behalf of Congress that they don't want to do this. But I think there's a sense among the six committee chairs and the key people who are over, who've been overseeing this and have ongoing investigations that this is not something that should be let go. And of course, and I think, you know, if it is, as I suspect, that Mr. Mueller really wanted Congress to take a fulsome look at this and wanted the public also to have a look at it, I'm sure he'll be happy to be subpoenaed and to appear before Congress. So I think that may well happen. Perfect. Uh, Jeffrey, as always, appreciate the time. Great, Shane. Thanks for having me on. That's lawyer and lecturer up at TRU, Jeffrey Myers. Thank you, Jeff. We talk to him every single Tuesday. We're going to stay on the issue of SNC-Lavalin, jumping from one lawyer who uh, both practices and teaches at TRU to another right after this. Local News Now. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. 
Well, welcome back to the show. We're going to stay on the SNC Lavalin topic. Pleasure, welcome to the program, Faculty of Law Professor at TRU, also formerly a senior lawyer on the Attorney General of uh, the Attorney General's Ministry here in BC. Uh, pleasure to welcome Craig Jones to the show. Good morning, Craig. How are you? Morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Okay, so as I mentioned, you've been, you've served as a senior role with the Attorney General here in BC. As you watch the SNC-Lavalin affair unroll and what we've seen so far from Jody Wilson-Raybould and others uh, who have uh, testified and offered up information to the Justice Committee, what's your take on uh, on sort of the obstruction or the interference, uh, the political interference charge that we're kind of, you know, that's sort of being inferred or is being danced around on the federal scene? Yeah, I guess I don't see it quite as cut and dried as, as some other people do on, on sort of either side. And, and that's because what happened in, in Canada was sort of mirrored in B.C. over the last few decades as the Attorney General's role has grown into a much more ministerial role, much more a cabinet officer and, and the head of a very large, powerful ministry. They realized that they sort of had to separate the prosecutions out. So both in B.C. and federally, they introduced a sort of independent prosecution service, and the director of that service, the uh, assistant deputy in, uh, in D.C. and the director of public prosecutions federally, uh, were sort of given the final word on prosecutions. The, the difficulty with an entirely independent prosecution service, of course, is that they're not accountable to anyone democratically. They're not elected. Um, and so... In, in both BC and in Canada, they maintained this ability for the political branch, if I can put it that way, to sort of override decisions of the director of public prosecutions with the proviso that if they wanted to do that, they had to do it publicly through uh, and in writing, uh, issue a directive and have it what they call gazetted so it's published in the Gazette for, for everyone to see. And then the idea was that would minimize um, political interference, but when it was deemed to be truly necessary that the representatives of the people get heard on prosecution policies, for instance, then, um, then that would be uh, possible to do and everyone would sort of be accountable down the chain. So it's, it's possible to argue, um, I, I mean, certainly it might have been a bit more strident than you would hope in the circumstances, but it's certainly possible to argue that there is nothing impermissible about cabinet colleagues and even the prime minister encouraging the the um, uh, attorney general to exercise a essentially political override of the uh, director of public prosecution's decision. I mean, I think it was incredibly ill-advised. And the way they've played it since, I mean, looks a lot more like a cover-up than, than an explanation. Um, but it's, uh, in, you know, at its heart, it's a complicated issue, and it really goes to the heart of what we want the Attorney General to be, uh, to be doing. And we've never really had that discussion. All of this has kind of crept up on us. Yeah, and uh, your colleague Jeffrey Myers made the point in the last segment. Perhaps uh, this is, adds fuel to the fire of the argument of separating out uh, the the attorney general's role uh, as far as uh, as uh, sort of the two hats of that 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 role takes, separating out the attorney general from the other side of that ministry. There's a lot of really good arguments for that, and we've you know had a bit of angst in this province over over the same thing. A few years back, they combined the attorney general and solicitor general into one ministry, which, you know, sort of instantly doubled the responsibilities, the political responsibilities of, of, of that position, and then they separated it out again. I think that was a, a good thing. 
and they may well want to, you know, sort of hive it off entirely because the AG really has two, two roles. One is, you know, outward looking as a cabinet minister projecting government um, policy outwards. But the other thing is inward looking and, and the attorney general is, is responsible in law to ensure that all government operations accord with the law. And, uh, you know, that's a pretty heavy responsibility, and, and you can imagine that there are plenty of times when there is, uh, you know, a lot of contention um, uh, internally uh, that, that the government has to, um, has to sort out because the attorney general is in a very difficult, um, you know, walking a sort of tightrope there. Um, on the on this legality of, of taping a phone call, we've all heard the contents of what Jody Wilson uh, Raybould had to say to to the head of the Privy Council, uh, Michael Wernick. Um, he, he was sort of a, a part of the government of the day at the point. Uh, I, I could you make an argument that as the government of the day and, and the, the, the the solicitor client privilege um, applies to that as she is representative of government herself, or, and there might be something sort of you know um, not right about recording a phone call or no? Well, I mean, I think there's a sort of sense of distaste that that hangs over any secret recording of a phone call. You know, it's obviously sort of an unfair thing. You have one person playing for the recording and another person, you know, completely unaware. The the ethical responsibility of lawyers is not to record other lawyers and not to record clients without their um, consent. But I think it's a stretch to suggest that sort of anyone who is in government um, even in senior positions of government, are the attorney general's client. And in fact, it runs kind of counter to this notion of the attorney general um, as responsible to the ethereal crown, but not beholden to fellow politicians and, uh, uh, and uh, other, other government officials. So I don't really see it as much as um, of, a, of a problem of lawyers' ethics uh, as much as kind of political fair play and i think that's that's going to play out in the political arena whether people hold that against her or not she says that she had sort of extraordinary reasons um, for doing it but you know once um someone gets a reputation uh, for that sort of thing it's it's difficult for people to trust them going forward absolutely uh craig unfortunately we're out of time but uh, i'd love to have you back on the program uh, again in the future if you're all right with that Anytime, Shane, yeah. Okay, appreciate it. That's Craig Jones. Uh, he's a faculty of law professor at TRU, also formerly serving as a senior lawyer with the Attorney General here in BC. And that brings to an end the Woodford Show this uh, for today. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL, same time tomorrow. Where the interior stays connected, this is CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. Radio NL, 610 AM, local news now.